Well, let's open in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time to be together, uh, to worship you, to experience the blessing of being in your community, uh, to experience your presence and to hear from your word and to hear uh, what you would say to us. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us through this sermon and we pray that you would bless this and anoint this and make it useful. And we thank you for your grace and amen. So today we're continuing the series we've been doing called the GCF Vision. The vision or the GCF Vision is... um, it's a term we use a lot, but we haven't had a, a, comp, a good comprehensive teaching on it uh, since, or a thorough teaching on it since Greg was teaching at RCF. So in this series, we're trying to concisely uh, but thoroughly explain what the GCF vision is. So our vision as a church is that there are certain aspects of Christianity that God wants Christians to rediscover and restore. And we're focusing on five of them. Number one, having a biblically complete understanding of, experience of, and presentation of the gospel. Number two, being grace-based rather than performance-based. Number three, being reformed and charismatic. Number four, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And number five, having a victorious eschatology. Um, So we are on part four of this series, understanding the role, relevance, and responsibilities of the church. And last week, we started talking about the Christian's church responsibilities. And again, I chose to not call it uh, the responsibilities of church members, because a person could interpret that as people who have agreed to become a member of a church. But every Christian is a member of the church. And these responsibilities apply to all Christians because all Christians are members of the church, the church at large, the church universal. Um, So last week, we mentioned four responsibilities of every Christian that are related to church. This week, we're going to talk about four more. Um, One thing I do want to mention that I didn't cover last week, I mentioned the responsibility uh, to serve. All Christians have the responsibility to serve one another. But one thing that sometimes we forget about that is important is that we also need to allow others to serve us. Sometimes we can get tempted to not do that. You know, Peter was tempted to not allow others to serve him when he told Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus responded to him, if, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part with me. But Jesus wants us to serve others and allow them to serve us. We all have the opportunity to reject the service of others, but that's an ungodly thing to do. It's not just probably coming from a place of pride, but it's actually unloving. You know, Paul told the Philippians that he was glad that they gave a gift to him, a monetary gift, not so much because he wanted the money, but he was glad that they would be blessed. And when we deny others the opportunity to serve us, we are being unloving towards them. You know, most of the time. Maybe if somebody um, hasn't eaten in five days and you ate this morning and they're giving you their lunch, maybe you should reject that. But most of the time, we should not reject the service of others. Most of the time, it would be unloving to do so in the church. But anyways, we've got four more uh, responsibilities that we're going to talk about today. The 
The first one we're going to talk about today is the responsibility of loving each other or of loving one another. This is clearly commanded of all Christians in the scriptures. Let's look at John 15, verses 12 through 17. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you love one another. Let's also look at Romans 8.13. No, that's not the right one. Let's try Romans 8.31. Um, hmm. So, well, there's a verse in Romans. Is there a Bible up here? Um, owe nothing to anyone except that you love one another. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, Owe no one anything but to love one another. Sorry for getting that wrong in my notes. Um, let's also look at Philippians 2, verses 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but in humility count others more significant of your, than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I really like that second verse because it kind of just puts in plain, in plain wording what it means to love one another. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Don't only look out for your well-being, but also look out for the well-being of others. That's really what it means to love one another. And lastly, let's look at John 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So God wants Christians in a church to love one another. It's, it's very important to him. He repeated it many times. And that love, if it's real, should come out in practical ways. So I just wanted to mention a few examples of ways that it probably should play out. Uh, things that we should do out of love for one another. Uh, if there's physical needs in the church, we should help each other with those. Let's look at Romans 12, verse 13. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And also 1 John 3, 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Now, I, I do always like to bring up that, you know, Paul also said if anyone is not willing to work, or kind of by implication, if anyone is capable of working and not willing to work, let him not eat. But that being said, if a, pers if a person in the church has physical needs, we should be willing out of love to help them with those. And if we're not, how does God's love abide in us? How can we really say we have God's love? 
So we should help each other with physical needs. We should also be praying for each other. We're going to talk more about praying for each other later in the sermon. But if someone else is important to you, if someone else's well-being is important, I'd like to hope that if your well-being is important to you, that you pray for things that relate to your well-being. Um, but, and if you do, if someone else's well-being is important to you, you should be praying for their well-being. You should be praying for good things to happen to them and for bad things to not happen to them. Uh, as may be relevant to their life situation. But if we love one another, that should motivate us to pray for one another. And if we don't have any motivation or if we're not willing to pray for one another, we should question whether or not we really love each other. Another way um, love for one another needs to be pressed out is forgiving each other. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 5. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Now, there are so many verses about forgiveness in the scriptures, but I chose to go to this one because it says love is not irritable or resentful. If we are resentful towards others, we should question whether or not we're loving them. You can't have unforgiveness towards someone and not be resentful towards them. Those are basically synonymous. Unforgiveness or the lack of forgiveness and resentfulness are basically synonymous. Love forgives others. And it's very important in the church that we forgive one another. The church should be an example or a picture of how to do relationships well. Not only should we be regularly, well, always forgiving one another, but the church should be a place where we have healthy conflict resolution. Because love isn't just forgiving each other, love also leads to confronting each other. Let's look at Leviticus 19, verse 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. I love how in Leviticus, God contrasts hating your brother in your heart um, with rebuking your neighbor. Bitter, it's the easiest way to grow bitterness towards others is to, uh, to let them walk all over you and never tell them that it makes you upset. And it's not unbiblical to tell them that it makes you upset when they walk all over you. Jesus said, if your brother sins against you seven times a day, rebuke him seven times and forgive him. He didn't say, if your brother sins against you seven times a day and walks all over you, just forget about it. He said, rebuke him. And because of love, we should forgive one another and we should confront one another. You know, this kind of way of conducting relationships can save relationships. There was a point uh, when Teresa and I were engaged when there were some things that she was doing that really annoyed me, and if I, and I was starting to get bitter about them. And I did forgive her, and we did work them out. But if I would have just suppressed those feelings, I would have grown bitter, and it, it really would have ruined the relationship. 
You have to learn to confront others, and if you can't learn to confront others, you're not loving others. God loves you, but he confronts you a lot if you pay attention. So forgiving each other and confronting each other, that's a way love should be played out in the church. It should also be played out in encouraging and comforting each other. So we all go through difficulties in life, and when others go through difficulties in the church, we should be there to encourage and comfort them. And that can make a real difference. We don't all go through difficulties every day necessarily, but everyone in life goes through difficulties or through difficult seasons. And if someone's going through a really hard time, even if you feel like you don't know what to say to encourage them or how to encourage them, sometimes just having someone to spend time with you in a really hard time can be very comforting. Because it's much better than not having someone to spend time with you or to listen to you. And that is the situation for more people than you might think. The last way I want to mention that love should be practically played out in the church is spending time, not necessarily a lot of time, but spending time thinking about how to bless others or bless each other or how to benefit each other. It's said in uh, Philippians 2, don't just look out for your own well-being, but look out for the well-being of others also. So if we're actually looking out for the well-being of others in the church, that That should mean we spend at least some portion of our mental energy thinking about what we could do for the well-being of others. We should spend time thinking about what we could do to bless other people in the church, especially. That's part of loving one another. That's a very practical way to love someone else, is to just think about what could I do to bless them. So anyways, all Christians have the responsibility of loving one another. And I do want to point out, even though... So loving others is a big theme in the Bible, but throughout the scriptures, or especially throughout the New Testament, there's not only an emphasis on loving others, but on top of that, a special emphasis on loving brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, I like to... I don't have it written down, so it's not on the slides, but I like that verse in Galatians that say, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those of the household of the faith. Throughout the scriptures, there are you know, multiple passages that show not only is it important that we love others, but it's especially important to God that we love brothers and sisters in Christ. I would dare say even more so than that we love non-Christians, so it's, it's important that we love everyone. So it's the responsibility of every member of the church, every Christian, to love other Christians. Especially in their local church. But the next responsibility that all Christians have, that we want to look at, is praying for one another. Let's look at Ephesians 6, chapter 18. I mean, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Again, throughout the scripture, 
you can, it's of major importance how we treat each other. He doesn't say making supplication for all people. He says making supplication for all the saints. Praying for other Christians. We have the responsibility to pray for other Christians. Let's also look at James 5.16. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great powers that is working. So we looked at Ephesians 6.18, and it mentions praying with alertness. So what kind of alertness is it talking about? I think there's two ways we should be alert when you know, praying for other, believ- other believers. We should be alert to what's going on in their lives, because it's hard to pray for someone if, uh, if you don't know what's going on in their life if you don't know what their needs are, if you don't know what they're going through. But we should also be alert to whether or not God is telling us to pray for a specific thing for them. Sometimes God gives us uh, like a burden to pray for someone in a specific situation, and sometimes that is God telling, communicating to us that he wants us to pray for them. Because God often gives us prayers to pray so that he will answer them. That's one of the ways God works. So those are two ways we should be alert in prayer for other believers. But I I really want to press out this point, that we should all have people, Christians, who we regularly pray for in specific things that we regularly pray for them about. We should have prayer goals, so to speak. This is how Paul prayed for others. Let's look at Colossians 1 verses 3 through 4 and also 9 through 11. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. This is Paul speaking to the Colossians. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. So it seems Paul regularly prays for the Colossians. And then he goes on to say, And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, For all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. So Paul saw prayer as a huge part of his job, and we're going to look at that in a minute. But honestly, I think if we really knew how much time Paul spent uh, praying for churches, we would probably be surprised. I think we would assume that he had more important things to do. For how many verses in the epistles he explains his prayers for the churches and uses terms like always, praying for you without ceasing, I think he spent a lot more time in prayer for the churches than we would realize. And honestly, if we knew how much it was, we'd probably think he was wasting time. But I don't think he thought that. And I don't think he was wrong. 
But let's look at some examples of how important it was to Paul to pray for the churches. So we just looked at in Colossians how he prays for the Colossians without ceasing, asking specific things relating to their spiritual health and well-being. But let's look at Ephesians 1, verses 15 and 16. For this reason, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. I thank God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4 through 9. I give thanks to God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Even the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Paul spends a lot of time in prayer for the churches. Paul thinks it's very important, and I would, I think you can safely assume he thought it was very profitable to spend his time praying for the churches, to spend his time praying for believers for their spiritual health and well-being. You know, some, some believers don't set aside time for prayer or set aside time to have a time of prayer because they don't know what to pray for, but the Bible gives us plenty of things we should pray for. And one of them is praying for the spiritual health and growth of other Christians, because we all could use other people to be praying for us for our spiritual health and well-being and growth. So I would just encourage you, if you don't have believers who you regularly pray specific things for, then do something about that. If you don't have other believers who you regularly pray specific things for, then set aside some time, make a list of believers you could be praying for, and make a list of things to pray for them about. And if you, if you have trouble making a list, you can just use the prayer that Paul prays in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12. I used to use that to pray for others um, a lot. But we should all have we should all have a habit of praying for other believers for specific things. And if you don't have that habit, I would really encourage you to start that habit. Praying for one another can make a big difference. We looked at James chapter 5, 16 earlier, but I want to look at the end again. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You know, praying for one another can really make a difference. It could change someone's day, or it could change someone's life. But Paul, who was very concerned about his stewardship to God, including his use of time, saw fit to spend a great portion of that time in prayer for other Christians. So we should recognize how important it is.
All right, the next uh, responsibility that I want to talk about that we have as believers in the church is to worship together. God wants us to worship together. So I kind of want to break this idea that God wants Christians to worship together down into two ideas. First off, God wants Christians to praise him. Let's look at Isaiah uh, 43, verses 20 through 21. The wild beasts will honor me, and the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So God's chosen people, which is the church, have been formed by God to declare his praise. Let's also look at Hebrews 13, verse 15. Through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of the lips acknowledging his name. And lastly, let's look at James 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So God wants his people to praise him. God form, one of the reasons God formed a people for himself is that we would praise him. But congregational worship is a, is a big thing in the Bible. It's not just that God wants us to praise him as disjointed individuals. God does want us to have private times of prayer and praise. But God values congregational worship. Let's just look at a, some verses that show that talk about Congregational worship, it's, it's a big idea in the Bible. Uh, Psalm 95, verses 1 and 2. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So, O come, let us sing to the Lord, gives the idea of singing together, praising God together, not alone. Let's also look at Psalm 35, verse 18. I will thank you in the great congregation. In the mighty throng, I will praise you. Psalm 107, verse 32. Let them extol him, or, or extol God, in the congregation of the people, and praise God in the assembly of the elders. Psalm 111, verse 1. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Psalm 149, verse 1. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. Praise him in the assembly of the godly. And lastly, I want to mention Matthew 18, verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So God wants his people to praise him, and we should have times of private prayer and worship, but God wants us to praise him as an assembled congregation. God wants believers to gather together to worship him. And Jesus said that there's synergy in that, if you will. He said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. When we come together to praise God together, we can encounter God and experience his presence in a different way, a tangible way, somewhat different than just praying and praising on our own. And that's important. Our group worship, our corporate worship, pleases God. 
You know, I've mentioned before in other sermons how when you have children, you enjoy spending time with them one-on-one, and you also enjoy spending time all as a family, and you wouldn't want to be missing out on either one of those experiences. But when we gather together to worship, not only does it please God, but it blesses others. So I like to worship with other people, but I can't worship with other people without other people. I kind of need others for that. And if others want to worship, they need other people. If others want to worship with other people, they need other people too. So others are benefited by your worshiping when you worship together. Because you can't worship God with others without others. So your worshiping God with others not only pleases God, but is a benefit to them. And that's something to think about. That's why I would say it's a responsibility for Christians to worship with other Christians. Not only does it please God and benefit others, but it also benefits you. You know, praising God with other believers is present, pleasant, and it helps us to get to know him deeper. It helps us to encounter his power and to be filled with his spirit and to grow closer to him. And it's, it's very important. It's one of the ways we get filled with the Holy Spirit is by worshiping with other believers. And no one should be missing out on it. So anyways, this is a, a responsibility of Christians to worship with other Christians. It's a way you can bless other Christians is by worshiping with them. Because no one can worship God with others alone. And the last responsibility that we have as Christians in the church, that we have as church members that I want to mention, is using spiritual gifts, using the gifts of the Spirit to serve one another. Let's look at 1 Peter 4, verse 10. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Let's also look at 1 Corinthians 12, verses 27 to 31. Now you are the body of Christ, and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you still a more excellent way. So what I want to point out about this is Paul tells us to desire the gifts of the Spirit. So we have a responsibility that we just saw in Peter to use spiritual gifts to serve one another, but that's not some passive thing. For one thing, Peter told us to use them. That implies we have a choice in the matter, to use the gifts of the Spirit or to not use the gifts of the Spirit. Or otherwise, Peter wouldn't have told us that. We have to choose to seek to use the gifts of the Spirit to serve one another. And Paul tells us to earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit. Let's also look at 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 5. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. 
especially that you may prophesy. For the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For, the one, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in his spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that he, the church may be built up. So Paul is telling us to seek to use spiritual gifts, the gifts of the Spirit, to build up other believers. You know, Paul desires that we would prophesy, because prophesy builds up the church, it encourages other believers, it comforts other believers. It's for exhorting other believers. But we have a responsibility to use spiritual gifts to serve each other. So there's, um, I'm somewhat focusing on the gifts of the Spirit that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 12, but there's a number of the gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12 that we've been kind of looking at recently, and no believer has all of them. But God wants every believer to benefit from all of them. And that happens when we're in a body where we use them to serve each other, because God has distributed those gifts throughout the body. Each local church should be a place where a person can experience or see each of the gifts, even though no one has all the gifts. But that can only happen if believers are taking up their responsibility to desire the gifts of the Spirit, pursue the gifts of the Spirit, and use them to serve one another. And this is something we're kind of trying to work on as a church, something we're, we need to get better at, is seeking to experience and use the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12 to serve one another. And I believe that in this year and in the next year, we're going to see a real increase in that. But that being said, there's a few things I want to say about using the gifts of the Spirit to serve one another, especially seeking the gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12. So the first thing I want to say is how to use spiritual gifts is learned over time. You know, you might hear this and think, well, yeah, Paul, I want to be able to bless others with prophecy, but I don't know how to do that. Well, prophecy and other gifts of the Spirit are learned over time. Let's look at 1 Samuel chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Now, the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called to Samuel, and he said, Here I am. And he ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But Eli said, I didn't call you. Lie down again. So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call you, my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. 
And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Now we're not going to get into the rest of the chapter because this, what we just read will show our point. But, you know, how to use the gifts of the Spirit is learned over time. Samuel had to learn to prophesy. Samuel had to learn to identify the voice of God. God was already speaking to Samuel, but Samuel had to learn to identify when God was speaking to him. Because it's easy to mistake God speaking to us for something else, for our own voice or for someone else's voice. And we need to learn to identify God's voice. Samuel had to learn how to prophesy. He didn't just innately have that knowledge. And that, I would say that applies for all the gifts of the Spirit. We have to learn how to use them. We don't innately know how to use them typically. We have to learn how to use them, and we need to seek that knowledge. You know, we can pray to God that he would show us how to use them, and there's also a good many books on it. Derek Prince has a good one on the gifts of the Spirit that gets very practical on how to use them and how to seek them. I also want to point out, if we want to start walking in the gifts of the Spirit more frequently, we should also seek to get better at identifying when God is speaking to us. You know, this is something that, has been, that I've been thinking about a lot recently that God's been kind of bringing up to me, is that I'm not yet very good at identifying God's voice. In fact, sometimes I can identify later on, oh, God was speaking to me then, but I thought it was just my idea. Like, I'm, I'm not yet very good at identifying the voice of God, but I'm growing in it. But if we want to walk in the gifts of the Spirit, we need to seek to grow at identifying the voice of God. Because a lot of them have to do with, um, you know, being able to identify God speaking to you. It's going to be pretty hard to prophesy, to share a message from God to others, if you can't identify the voice of God. It's going to be hard to have an interpretation of tongues if you can't identify the voice of God. Typically, when gifts of healing are used, a lot of times they're initiated by God with God speaking to someone about uh, someone else who he wants to heal. We need to get better at identifying God's voice, identifying when he's speaking to us. And we also need to be seeking the gifts of the Spirit. Because the gifts of the Spirit aren't something we seek to use. They're not some passive thing. We are supposed to seek them. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 13. Therefore, the one who speaks in a ton should pray that he may interpret. I just use this to point out whether or not we pray for the gifts of the Spirit has bearing on whether or not we actually use them or experience them. You know, if the person who pray, who's going to interpret is going to interpret whether or not he prays for it, why would Paul say to pray for it? Whether or not we pray for the gifts of the Spirit will affect, will certainly affect whether or not we experience the gifts of the Spirit, whether or not we get to use them, 
We should pray for them. And we should pray for them in specific situations. If, if you're in a situation, um, maybe you have a friend or a, a brother and sister in Christ and they're going through a, a difficult time and they're confused about what to do next, you can pray that God would give you a word of prophecy to share with them. If you have a friend or you know a brother and sister in Christ who, uh, who needs healing, you can pray that God would give a gift of healing for that situation. If you're in a situation and you think there might be demonic oppression or like, you know, maybe someone has an unnaturally difficult struggle with something or a, or a health problem that doesn't make sense and you think it might be demonic but you're not sure if it's demonic, you can pray for discernment of spirits. If you have a tough situation and you don't know what to do about it, you can pray for a word of wisdom. But if we're going to ever actually get around to really using the gifts of the Spirit, we need to be seeking for them. We need to be praying for them in actual situations. And we need everyone to be doing this. The only way a church can have the gifts of the Spirit, have all of them, is for believers to take seriously and take up their responsibility to use the gifts of the Spirit and to pursue the gifts of the Spirit to serve one another. And if we had all of our members doing this, you know, that would be super beneficial for us as a church. If we regularly had prophecies, if we regularly had healings, if we regularly had discernment of spirits, if we regularly had words of wisdom and interpretation of tongues, we'd be so much better off than we would not having those things. Like, this is a big deal. We need every member to be seeking these. This is very important. This is kind of, in my opinion, like a big next step for us as a church. This is what we really need to be focusing on in this season. We need to make a permanent change in how we interact with the gifts of the Spirit. We need to get, we need to get used to seeking them more, and that needs to become a permanent change. Not a, well, this is a season where we seek the gifts of the Spirit. No, it needs to be a permanent change. So in conclusion, every Christian has responsibilities and every believer should take those responsibilities, responsibilities seriously. And the church will be greatly benefited when every believer does take their responsibilities seriously. And every believer will be greatly benefited when they take their own responsibilities seriously. So let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for your grace for us, for your love for us, Lord. We thank you that uh, you are always here to help us grow. With any issue we may have, you are here for us with grace and with love. You are a patient Father who is patient with us. You are not disappointed in us for our shortcomings. You are here for us. We pray that you would help us to seek you more and to seek the gifts of the Spirit more and to really serve others and bless others with them. We pray that you would bless us with faith and that you would stir us up, Lord. We pray that you would draw us close to you. Uh, we pray that you would just bless us with more of your presence. And we thank you for your grace and love and provision. And we thank you that you will give us this victory. And amen. So today's communion meditation is called Real Faith is Visible.
Let's look at James 2, verse 18. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I will show you my faith by my good deeds. So in our previous communion meditation, we looked at how righteousness is accredited to people if they have faith. They didn't earn righteousness, but God credits righteousness to people who have faith in him. But James is bringing up the point, a person might say they have faith or think they have faith and not really have faith. And if a person does have faith, you should be able to see it in their good deeds. And if you can't, there's real reason to question whether or not a person has faith. Let's also look at 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. But those who won't care for their relatives or their families, especially those in their own household, have denied the faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. So Paul is saying if a, a person you know, has the means to take care of, say, a disabled family member or a family member who can't do anything for themselves, and they're just neglecting that, they're just going to, you know, not take care of their family member who's in need, they might say they have faith, they might think they have faith, but God says they don't have faith, which means God says they don't have righteousness credited to them. The Bible is very clear that salvation is by faith, but that real faith can be seen through a person's good deeds. If a, per, if a person doesn't have their life changed in any way by the gospel, if a person doesn't come to actually fear God in response to the gospel, their response to the gospel isn't genuine, and they don't have faith. But even this is an area where God's grace meets us. It's not up to us um, to just produce good works because God's the one that gives us faith. We need to cooperate with that. We need to respond by choosing to do good works. You can't really do a good work without choosing to. That's how we respond to God. But God's the one that gives us faith, and it is a gift. And if we have real faith, it will be visible. So let's thank God for his gift and praise him as we come to the table.